0: Welcome to the Sports Lodge, where sports,
1: entertainment, and pop culture merge within the mind of your host, Roger Lodge. Welcome in to the Sports Lodge here on the Global Story Network. My name is Roger Lodge, and as I come to you from Southern California, man, I don't think there's ever been a better time to be a sports fan here in L.A. I mean... Think about it. You have the Lakers who just brought in Anthony Davis to go along with LeBron James and Kyle Kuzma. Not quite a big three. Maybe it's more like a a 2.7, 2.8. But I'm going to tell you right now. At some point, that's going to be a big three because Kyle Kuzma is going to be really, really good. Also, the Lakers brought in Danny Green, who is now entering his 11th NBA season in the purple and gold. He's going to do it as a Laker after he won an NBA title with the San Antonio Spurs. So I'm looking forward to an unbelievable Laker season. And then you have the Clippers, who not only landed Kawhi Leonard during the offseason, and let's face it, if the Clippers would have simply landed Kawhi Leonard, I think everybody would have been absolutely thrilled with that here in Tinseltown. But not only do they bring in Kawhi Leonard, Jerry West, the logo, somehow, someway, had something to do with it, I guarantee you. Sprinkled his magic dust, and Kawhi Leonard was able to bring along his buddy Paul George. So now the Clips have two of the best two-way players in the NBA in Kawhi and PG-13 to go along with Sweet Lou Williams, one of the best scorers in the NBA. They have one of the best defenders in Patrick Beverly. Landry Shamit can flat out shoot it for the Clips at the number two guard. Ivaka Zubots is more than a serviceable big man. I think he's going to be pretty good. The Clips also have Maurice Harkless, Jamichael Green, and the heart and soul of Clipper basketball, Montrez Harrell, who comes off the bench and brings that energy. So Lakers-Clippers... What a rivalry that's going to be from the get-go as they get together on opening night and then they'll get it on on Christmas Day as well in a national televised game. So Laker-Clipper games this season, that's not going to be just a game. That's going to be an event and somewhere... Jerry Buss is looking down, smiling on Lakerland, because when the Lakers play the Clippers this season, it's going to be exactly what Jerry Buss wanted. Not just a basketball game, but an event. Heck, we might even get Jack Nicholson back out at Laker games in his courtside seat in 2019-2020. So you got the Lakers and Clippers here in L.A. You have the Rams with... One of the best young quarterbacks in the league in Jared Goff. One of the best offensive players in Todd Gurley. One of the best defensive players. An MVP in the league, a defensive player of the year, Aaron Donald. And you got the sexy young head coach, Sean McVay. And they just added... USC former linebacker Clay Matthews. So the Rams are in good shape for the next couple of years. And then you have the Chargers here in SoCal. Phillip Rivers leading that Charger team that last year started 1-2 and two and ended up 12-4, beat the Ravens in Baltimore before losing to the eventual Super Bowl champion, New England Patriots, and my man crush, Tom Brady. So you have the Rams and the Chargers. And they are going to open a brand new state-of-the-art Taj Mahal-like stadium here in L.A. next year. So not only will you have the Lakers and Clippers sharing the same building here in L.A., but the Rams and the Chargers will be doing the same thing. So you got those two rivalries And you got the Dodgers who just wrapped up their seventh straight Western Division title in the National League. And they're hoping to make it back to a third straight World Series and win their first fall classic since Kirk Gibson took Dennis Eckersley deep way back in 1988. So you see what I'm saying? To be a sports fan here in L.A. right about now is absolutely glorious. Rams, Chargers, Lakers... Clippers, you got the Dodgers. And I know it's been a really rough season for my Angels. And for those of you who are not aware, I do the Angel pregame show for the last oh seven or eight years now so I've been around this Angel Ball Club and I can tell you firsthand what a difficult season it has been you have the unthinkable tragedy the death of young pitcher 27 year old Tyler Wayne Skaggs who passed away back on July the 1st it's been a really really rough season losing their beloved Tyler Skaggs and all the injuries but at the same time you still have the eight time all Star, the two time MVP should be four, but is about to be three. The back to back all star game MVP and the six time Silver Slugger award winner and future Hall of Famer Mike Trout to cheer for. And what a pleasure it's been covering Mike Trout uh, since he came up late in 2011 and, of course, had that amazing rookie year in 2012. But this guy not only one of the best players in baseball the best player i think it's uh, i think it's pretty common knowledge that mike trout's the best player in all of major league baseball But I can tell you firsthand, one of the best dudes you'll ever meet. So you got the Angels with Mike Trout trying to run down a third MVP. The Dodgers are trying to win their first World Series since 1988. And gosh darn it, I think they just might do it here in 2019. You got the Lakers and Clippers and the Rams and the Chargers. So again, amazing time to be a sports fan here in L.A. And here in the Sports Lodge, I got to tell you, we recently had on Jonathan Coachman from the World Wrestling Entertainment and, you know, formerly of ESPN. And after Coach appeared here in the Sports Lodge, he was calling. He was texting, man, I forgot to talk about this. Man, I forgot to talk about that. Man, Roger, you forgot to bring up this. So guess who's waiting on hold? to kind of do a part two here in the Sports Lodge. You guessed it, it's my guy from the World Wrestling Federation and World Wrestling Entertainment, formerly of the four letter ESPN. It is my buddy, Jonathan Coachman, who's somewhere out and about on this beautiful day in SoCal, I'm just gonna go and see where I end up with that man they call the coach.
0: Do you think things will change now because of Jonathan Coachman?
1: That's a high roller, dog.
0: They're not going to be happy about that. At this point, it seems like there's an overriding sentiment that nobody wants to see anything but Jonathan Coachman. Let's everybody just take a deep breath and just diffuse this thing. You hear me? 90% of people in this country, maybe in the world, are unhappy with their own lives. And when they look at somebody who is successful, they automatically assume, if I was Jonathan Coachman, yeah. oh, I'd be partying, I'd be high-fiving, I'd be doing everything I could possibly do to enjoy it because it may not last long. This is a good man, right? He's got the magic eye, I can feel it. Just had a little freak out, that's all. We all been there. I'm Jonathan Coachman. I love being here, I
1: enjoy being here. What is your problem? There's a black man stealing my show! Here he is, Jonathan Coachman! What's up, Coach?
0: Well, I am, I am as crazy as a dad as I think I am. I am taking my beautiful daughter and four of her friends to the Carrie Underwood concert tonight. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so here's question number one. Why? Uh, because
0: I adore her. She asked for nothing. And this just happened to be the date that Carrie Underwood was closest to us. And she's been wanting to see her for years.
1: Is there, is there anything better, anything in life better than making our kids happy?
0: It's all I live for. It, it literally is all I live for. It's all I care about. She's been bouncing off the walls for a day and a half since we confirmed that we were going. And, and then it just tore her apart. I said, which two friends are you going to take? Because I had a hookup, right? And she's like, Dad, I've got four close friends. I can't hurt two of them. So of course I got to dig into the favor pile again, oh. and I get the, you know what I mean. Sure, you know what I mean because I don't want her to be upset, and I don't want her friends to have to lie to the other friends, you know, because like the five of them run around together all the time. So it's like you, you got to take five, or you can't take any.
1: Coach, what you have going on? Taking your daughter and four of her best friends to the Carrie Underwood concert. I have that happening coming up in November when Post Malone comes to Southern California. I gotta get oh. my I gotta get my boy Peyton and three or four of his boys to the post Malone show at either Honda Center or the Fabulous Forum. And if I don't, I'm like the biggest loser dad they'll ever be. <laughs> I gotta come through in the clutch, man. This is it. You're teetering, baby. You're teetering. <laughs> and I got to tell you something. I got to tell you something. You know, I've had the honor and pleasure of doing things like being on stage with the Beach Boys. I've been on, you know, I've done the talk shows, the Today Show on NBA. I've done it all, Coach. But I've never felt more pressure than coming through with Post Malone tickets for my kid coming up. Hey, how has how has being a father changed you in the industry?
0: Um, in the industry, I would say that, um, I'm a a lot more compassionate now than I've ever been. I'm a lot less selfish than I've ever been. I'm not less competitive, but, um, just thinking about other people instead of just jumping to a rash conclusion probably is my biggest thing. And it's helped me in a lot of situations, probably not screw myself over by jumping to rash decisions because with my kids. I'm like, I take a step back and say, all right, is this really worth it? You know, is it really worth getting upset when they don't ask for anything? You know, all those questions you ask yourself. So I think it just made me a better person in in, in the whole, you know.
1: I saw a thing the other day with Kobe Bryant and his daughter's basketball team. They finished in fourth place in a tournament. And Kobe asked the team, What are you going to do with those fourth place trophies? And I think most of the girls at that moment were feeling the pressure of the Mamba mentality. So they spewed out what they thought they wanted uh, the Mamba to hear, right? And most of them Uh said, Oh, we're going to throw them away. We don't want fourth place trophies. But Kobe came back with, No, 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 no. Don't do that place those fourth-place trophies right next to your bed. And every morning when you get up, you look at them and tell yourself, I'm never going to win a fourth-place trophy ever again. And these are young girls, man, learning the Mamba mentality. Coach, is that a little much?
0: That is the Mamba mentality at its best, and that's exactly what I would do. That's exactly what I would do. So if
1: if you're coaching Little League, Okay, you're coaching little league here in the year 2019, and you know how it is now. Everybody's got to get the participation trophy. How do you feel about that? I hate it. I hate it, and I've got two kids that are in that in that you know
0: the that age right now, and I hate the participation trophy because guess what? I know that you've been through life's ups and downs. I've been through life's ups. And downs. I don't care if you're rich, poor, or I don't care, but. If you haven't learned how to fail and made it motivate you, then you're not going to handle life at all because there's a lot more failures than there is successes. You know, even as far as you and I have come in our industry and been on national TV, hit shows, whatever it is, it's still the next thing that that you feel the pressure in life. And to me, it's the same when you're a kid. You should learn that. That's just what I believe
1: coach give me the career moment that at the time you thought oh man this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me but you look back now and you realize that was the best thing that ever happened to me
0: um when when i left ESPN and i left for a reason and i thought i was going to walk right into wwe and in my mind i was like they want me back and i'm going to go back full time and for a lot of reasons, they had to wait like four months. In those four months, I got all these other gigs that I'm doing now. And in addition to WWE, and I was like, man, how am I going to survive four or five months not working when that was the whole plan? And now I'm spreading things out and still doing WWE, but not having to do it every week. And that's what I would have walked into if I would have done the original plan that Vince wanted right when I left ESPN. So it's turned out to be a blessing uh, and not... You know, and I just lose four months of money. That that I've forgotten about that already. You know what
1: I mean? Sure. Of all the gigs that you've had, give me the one where when you were driving there and you're in the back of that limo and they're taking you to work in that Bentley limo. <laughs> tell me which was the gig or what is the gig you just couldn't wait to get there for it. Man, uh man, I've been
0: ooh, I've been so lucky. Wow. I would probably say uh, when The Rock um, went up against Hulk Hogan in WrestleMania 18, I believe, and I knew I was going to be a part of the pre-match hike with him, and then to get to watch that, and I don't care what anybody says, two of the three biggest names in the history of wrestling, and and I got to be a part of that up close and personal. That's probably the one thing that stands out uh, above the rest but I've been to so many cool events that uh, I can't just pick one, but that was the one I was involved in. That I was like, man, I can't wait for this to happen.
1: You got 20,000-plus screaming, yelling, throwing things at these guys when they come down. What's it like to be in the middle of that, right, while it's happening?
0: There, there's one day, and I've told it on your show before, when I was in San Diego, and, and Rock came out, and he surprised everybody, and we went toe-to-toe. We I beat him up, and then he got the best of me with a couple other people. And that was the first time I'd ever come out of character to hear 20,000 go crazy. But to be in the middle of it and be booed and be called names because The Rock told the fans to call me a name, uh, it was beautiful. It's like music to your ears because you realize the fans wouldn't bother giving that energy to you, even though it's negative energy. They're still giving it to you because you've performed at a level that makes them so irate at you that you've done your job as a heel. And that's the whole job as a bad guy in wrestling. And I was really damn good at it. I was really damn good at it.
1: Coach, whenever I host live events and you have a live microphone and you, or maybe it's live television. I used to do the, you know, the arrivals at some of the Oscar parties for Dick Clark productions, uh, back in the day, when you have a live microphone and you have a crowd going nuts Sometimes, especially a little early in your career, it's tough to stick to the script because you get all fired up and you do stupid stuff. I did some (laughs) stupid stuff with a live microphone. Did you find it hard to stick to the script when you got 25,000 people screaming and going crazy in a frenzy?
0: That is a big hell no. And here's why. And here's why. Because unlike any other show in the world, the one person you do not have waiting for you when you walk back through the curtain or you walk back backstage is Mm -hmm. Vincent Kennedy McMahon. And I always had him waiting for me whenever I came back from whatever I was doing. So people ask me all the time, how did you not laugh when Stone Cold was in your face saying, what, 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 what? When the rock was making fun of you being on the, whatever it was, how did you not laugh? And I said, would you laugh if you knew Vince was standing 10 feet away, ready to rip you to shreds? Because it was live. It was live. So no matter what I did, I hosted everything, press conferences, uh, uh, you know, restaurant openings, everything. Never scared me because never I never scared myself to say something that I shouldn't because I knew that Vince was there to rip me if I did.
1: Biggest compliment Vince McMahon ever gave you. Let's hear it. He put me on the plane to Afghanistan because he
0: wanted me next to him for one of our first trips over there. We did our Christmas uh, show, and then when we got there, they needed an extra match, and he had me wrestle Ric Flair. So just have me go, and then to be able to have a match on TV against Ric Flair,
1: one of my career highlights. He throws you out to the wolves, and you got to wrestle the nature boy in Afghanistan. <laughs> I how? How? I mean, did you did you and Flair get together beforehand and discuss what was going to go down,
0: Roger? Discuss what's going to go down. What, what do you think this? you think wrestlers talk to
1: each other? This is this is this is highly competitive stuff. <laughs> you trained for months for that bout, right? <laughs> yeah. I will. I will say this. That,
0: you know, Ric Flair's, uh, you know, his famous finishing move is, is the figure four. And I took it so badly that we started calling it the figure two <laughs> because I just was terrified for my knees to go in those directions because I thought it was just going to hurt like crazy. So that's what I remember from that match is I took a horrible finish.
1: What's it like <laughs> entertaining the troops, man? It's
0: awesome. It's awesome. And, you know, we went over there for several years. And it was right smack dab in the middle of the war uh, after 9-11. And, you know, Vince is scared of nothing. So he wanted to take us wherever, where other celebrities wouldn't go. So we got dropped down right in the desert in Afghanistan, right at the big base. That back in 9-11, you know, 2001, you know, they dropped like 300, you know, Navy SEALs. There was two buildings. They overtook those two buildings, killed everybody, and then had to secure that area while civilians built, uh, the cabins for the troops to stay in. So imagine, and, they, and we were told the story that when they brought these Navy SEALs in, they were told, hey, listen, half of you are not coming home. Who wants to go? And every hand in the room shot up. And so they knew they were going to get dropped out of a plane middle of the night. They knew they were going to stand guard. And these people were building these cabins like you'd go to summer camp as fast as they could put them up because they knew that the, the armies were coming, right? So that's something that people don't think about, that we actually got to see up close and personal, and we stayed there. We stayed in one of the cabins, or several of the cabins, that they built uh, in the middle of the night and into the morning.
1: Is that life? Is that like a life-changing trip?
0: There's no question, uh, because a couple of years later I refused to go because my now ex-wife, but my wife then, was pregnant with our first child, and and I knew what we'd be flying into, and I knew the danger that we were – So I refused to go. And it's the only time in my entire life working with Vince, which now spans two decades, 20 years, um, that I've ever told him no. Um, And he wasn't happy about it. But I knew that the last thing I wanted to do at that point was make my wife upset, and and so I didn't go. But, yeah, it's it's life-changing, there's no doubt. You know, because all these troops that you think about in your head, you see them, and they're 19, they're 20, they're kids, and they're carrying around machine guns. They're trying to protect uh, our country, and it's really – it's eye opening to say the least, uh, what they go through over there that most people will never understand.
1: Darn coach, I can hear it in your voice when you describe that, man. This is no Brian Williams recount of his time over there. This is like real stuff that really happened. So tell me, what's the one visual that will live with you forever in your heart, in your soul, in your mind when you were over there?
0: Well, the the one it, it it's it could be a tragic story. We just don't know. But for me, I like to look at it as a funny story. And we got, we got sent out to what they call the FOBs, the Ford Operating Bases. And basically what it is is in Afghanistan, it's a huge desert. And they put a bunch of troops every so often to protect the area. And they stay out there for about three months at a time. So we landed. They're so excited because they don't see other human beings unless they're shooting at them. And they asked us if we wanted to, to go to their makeshift shooting range, which is like the side of a mountain. We're like, yeah, we'll, we'll shoot out the back of a Humvee. And so me and Triple H were sharing a, a, a Humvee and a gun. And Triple H shoots, and he, he the kick is so bad, he shoots it straight up in the air. And we don't see anything hit the mountain. And we said to the guy, we said, what's on the other side of that mountain? He goes, don't even worry about it. He goes, it's just a village. And we're like, what? <laughs> oh, what? Wow. What? So we're not sure at this point to this day if we ever hit anybody. He goes, listen, I'm just joking. That village is a long way away. But for a couple of seconds, can you imagine the terror it hit in me and Triple H's mind that we could have just shot over the mountain into a village? But apparently the village was several miles away. So they just thought it was a funny joke for them. I didn't find it so funny.
1: Whenever you mention Triple H, I'm sure the audience knows and is pretty much aware that that is Vince McMahon's son-in-law. Of course, his daughter, Stephanie yeah. McMahon, is a big part of the business as well. What's it like behind the curtain when you're in a room with Vince McMahon, Triple H, Stephanie McMahon? How intimidating can that be, man?
0: Um, there There will never be another human being that I ever encounter that will be more intimidating than being around Vince. Even as much as I know him, as, much, as long as I've known him, he's still intimidating. Um, Triple H is very different than Vince. Uh, Triple H is very approachable. Uh, I, I, I love his management style. Uh, he overcame in a major way the, oh, he's just married to the boss's daughter. That's why he gets everything stigma. And he's created another part of the business that is making tons of money. It's worldwide in, in what they call NXT. So being in the room with all of them is just very different. And Stephanie is no-nonsense. She is all about the philanthropic uh, part of the business, Uh, but she's no business. She definitely uh, didn't fall far from the tree. Uh, But for Vince, he respects me. I respect him, and I'll do anything he asks me to do.
1: Is Stephanie McMahon really good at what she does?
0: No, she's not really good at what she does. She's great at what she does, and I have no reason after 20 years to say anything other than the truth. And when she started in management, you know, she was a young girl. You know, she was learning like everybody else, but she's grown into a fantastic executive, um, somebody who understands the business. She understands people. She's very compassionate. She's got three daughters of her own. And, and she just wants to create something that is great for everybody from adults all the way down uh, to kids. So she's fantastic at what she
1: does. Who's the greatest heel you were ever around, and not only was he a great heel, he embraced it and loved the role as much as anybody.
0: cool wow! Um, probably the greatest heel man. It, the the people forget the Rock was a, a, a huge heel before he was a babyface. They just forget that because he was such a great babyface. Um, I I would oh, cool it. I would say Triple H is a great heel, um, but but the all-time great, when you think about them, you never think about them as a heel, but all of them were at some point. Hulk Hogan was a, was a heel at one point. But I think the person who embraced it the most, because if you can create a heel that other people want to be like, that's magic. That's magic. And the Rock, when he was a heel, the reason he became such a big baby face, it's like a teeter-totter. And if you're a huge baby face, then when, you, when the totter comes up, you become just as big of a of a baby face on the other end. Will you ever so you think of it like that?
1: Were you ever around the late great Rowdy Roddy Piper in his top when he was a top heel in the WWF? No, he
0: was done by he was done by probably the early nineties. Really performing a lot, I got to be around him a lot. But I was around him when they bring him in for appearances here and there. Uh, but I really wasn't here for his heyday, which was in the eighties. Uh, but anybody you talk to will tell you that he he embraced who he was, and you almost have to walk around 24 hours a day and believe that this is who you are. I've been the coach my entire life, and this is who I am, and just turned up probably eight or ten notches when I'm on the air or doing an interview or on TV, whatever it is. The Rock will tell you the same thing, that the Rock character, he has a humongous ego, but he can be very humble in real life. On T V the Rock's not humble ever because he's a rock and why should he be? And that's where you have to really be able to embrace who you are, be able to to turn it on and turn it off, because fans look at you as that person the whole time. That's who you are to them all the time. So you gotta be able to really ride that fence and it's not easy to do, but the really big stars are able to do it better than anybody.
1: When you first joined the World Wrestling Entertainment or the World Wrestling Federation. Who did you want to be like? The, who did you study before you took on that role?
0: Man, it's it's so funny because much like what I'm doing now and trying to kind of be groundbreaking in what I do. When I came in, you know, I I, I got here so fast that I didn't even have time to think because this was never something I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to get the ESPN. That was it. So this happened. It, it, it just kind of a, a fluky thing. So I didn't look at me and Gene Okerlund as a backstage interviewer. I wanted to be an entertainer. And so that's why my career took so many different uh, directions because I was big enough to wrestle. I could talk good enough. I could also uh, take a beating uh, eventually down the road. And, and so all those different things. So I didn't really look at anybody. I looked at the people who could talk because I knew I had the gift of gab. And if I was going to make it anywhere, it was going to be using my voice and using uh, my character, the coach. Uh, So probably guys like The Rock and Stone Cold and how they delivered everything, that's who I looked at the most. But certainly not to be like them because I knew I would never wrestle full time.
1: Coach, what would be a better reality show? What takes place in the ring in front of everyone or what happens backstage behind the curtain?
0: (laughs) Well, man, I've got about a thousand stories behind the curtain. Uh, that would make for great reality television. So that's a that's very, very easy answer for me, the stuff that subject is on behind the scenes, because it's almost like a, a movie within a movie. You know, I was in a, a, a play years ago called uh, Noises Off, where basically you had a play within a play. That's what it's like out on the road, because it's a, it's a very different world. It's not normal to be on the road 52 weeks a year. It's not normal not to be home but three days a week. That's just not normal. But the upside is that it's so much fun. So sometimes your drama lives out backstage because you're there all the time, four to five days a week. So when else is the drama going to play out? You know what I mean? Sure. We all have drama in our lives. We all do. So a lot, a lot of times it's played out backstage, which is, it has been fun to watch at times, but also uh, cringeworthy at times, too.
1: Is it almost weird when you get off the road and you've been on the road for a long time? Like, you know, it's like a circus act or a rock star. You know, you're traveling around the country playing a different arena every night. And when you get home and have to be normal, that becomes abnormal. It's kind of weird.
0: When I used to have three suitcases laid out, depending on how long I was going to be gone. And for the first six months that I left the WWE and then I was at ESPN, I would wake up in like night sweats and my wife would be laying next to me going, what's wrong? And I felt like I had missed a flight. or I felt like I had missed the car service or whatever the case might be. Cause I had done that for 10 years, every week, getting in a car service, going to the airport, traveling five days a week. That was my life. I went to over 500 shows in 10 years and we do 52 a year. So do the math. I missed one, one Monday night in 10 years. And so, yeah, that, that's a big deal. And it's hard to sleep because you think you're going to miss a flight. And everybody's been through this, right, where you wake up and you're like, did I miss my flight? Did I miss my alarm? Did I not set it? That was a lifestyle for us. And if you missed a flight, you were risking getting fired. That's how serious it was. So you couldn't miss flights. You couldn't miss shows. So that took probably a full year before I stopped waking up at times thinking I was
1: going to miss being at a show. How many alarms would you set?
0: Uh, always, you know, on your phone, you can, I have six right now to this day that I do where I'll like every five minutes, I would do that. Like 7 a.m., 7.05, 7.10, 7.15, always, 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 always.
1: And how important was it to travel around with people that you liked and people that were, you know, willing to work together as a team? It had to be really important to work with good people. So it's, it's everything. Cause, cause think about this.
0: When you go on a Friday, Every show has to be 200 miles in between, right? So you're driving a minimum of 600 miles every single week. So you have to travel with somebody because it's not safe to travel by yourself. And if you don't have somebody in the car that you like, imagine being in the car for 600 miles a week and you don't like the people you're in the car with. I found two dudes. The Hurricane is one of them and a guy named Christian who was a big star as well. And those two guys, we became known simply as, in quotes, the car. (laughs) And whenever we would show up, They would say, all right, because they mark off your attendance and what time you show up. They'd be like, all right, the car is here, and that would mean three mark-offs because they knew which three guys it was. And we traveled together for three years. I would get the car. Another guy would rent the hotel. Another guy uh, would make sure that we had uh, the the workouts and the gyms and all that kind of stuff that we needed. Uh, So we all had a job to do, and we loved it, and it was magic for three years.
1: When my wife was uh, interviewing wrestlers in between matches on uh, Ted Turner's WCW, she used to jump into a -a rent-a-car sometimes with, like, Gene Okerlund and Ric Flair. And she said that some of the greatest conversations she's ever had took place driving from the airport or from one arena to the next. Give me a conversation from arena to arena (laughs) that the coach will never, ever forget.
0: (laughs) Oh wow. Um whoa, that's putting me on the spot. Um I can think of a 1000000 that I that I c that I'm I can't tell until a comes out in twenty years and those guys are dead. Um I I would I will say this. I will say this. That there was a um we were at a Bob Evans and a I can't even tell this one, now because uh, there's something I can't tell I just can't get in trouble. Um, <laughs> this is a very, very hard question. I think it's the first time that you've ever stumped me. Okay, where's, you know, the, I'm, okay, I'm,
1: I'm, where's the Bob Evans? What part of the country are we in? We, we were. Now you're
0: going to start a work game. Now that's what you're going to
1: do. <laughs> you knew exactly where I was going there. I can't believe he just busted me. All right, all right, give me this then. Give me this. Of all okay. Of all the wrestlers you ever worked with, not name The Rock... Give me the guy you loved working with the most. Oh, man,
0: um, I, I really I, I really enjoyed working with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Um, me and him had our issues because there was a time, and I don't fault him for this, and we actually just hung out a few weeks ago, and he's in a different place now than he was back then, but he took his spot in the world, in the hierarchy of, of wrestling very, very seriously. And there was a time when I was a really top heel and him and I were supposed to wrestle and he just didn't show up because he felt like it was beneath him to wrestle somebody like me, because he has been such a big star instead of the entertainment aspect that we could have had. Um, so it was very upsetting to me, but I, uh, I really enjoyed working with him because he took his position very seriously. And I think in this world of entertainment, no matter what you're doing, that I love to have fun. And nobody has more fun than I do. But I work really, really hard to make it look really easy. And I take it very seriously, my role in whatever project that I do. And I want to work with people like that. They can have fun. But when it comes time to perform, they're ready and they're prepared and they take it seriously. And I don't care what you're doing. And that's the one thing that Stone Cold was all business, all the time. And now he's starting to have more fun because he's been away from it for so long. And if we could have had a little bit of that stone cold back then, then he would have just been magical to be around all the time.
1: You just said something really interesting, the fact that it takes a lot of hard work on your behalf to make whatever project you're working on appear that it's so easy to do. I got people that come in and out of the luxurious Sports Lodge studios and watch me behind the microphone. And a lot of them have said over the years, and I'm not patting myself on the back here, but they say, Man, you went through that whole segment, didn't mess up once. You were smooth going from this to that. You make it look so easy. Well, yeah, I've been doing this for 20-something years, <laughs> yeah. and I still get up every single morning and practice doing it, so it does look like it's easy. Coach, let me let you behind my curtain for a second. We had John Fogarty here in the Sports Lodge, the great uh, you know, the leader of Creedence Clearwater Revival, and they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Fogarty told me he gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning, every single weekday, and he goes into his studio to play the guitar, to practice the guitar, and I say to him, John, Susie Q, down on the corner, Proud Mary, have you ever seen the rain? You're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What in the world? Why are you getting up at 5 a.m. to go practice the guitar? You know what he said to me? A really simple sentence. He said, Roger, I want to get better. How amazing is that? This is like John Fogarty wants to get better. He wants to be the greatest guitar player in the world. Do you want to get better, Coach? Guess what? If you don't want to be the greatest at what you
0: do, then I don't even know why you're doing it. And I love when I run into people that aren't like John Fogarty because most of them aren't like John Fogarty. Greatness is only great for a reason because they spent a lifetime doing it. And the ones that are truly great, like him, have a natural talent, and then they apply the natural talent, and that's where greatness comes through. Michael Jordan, if he wouldn't have worked at it, wouldn't have been the greatest basketball player of all time. Tiger Woods, the same thing. You can name any great player. Nobody got there because they said, you know what? I'm just great, and I'm great at what I do, and I'm going to be the greatest and not work at it. And I love hearing stories like that because there's stuff that I do at home that nobody will ever see just to get my body right, my mind right, to, be, to want to get up and head to the airport uh, every single week. It takes a discipline that I have better now than I've ever had before. But the older you get, the more disciplined you have to be because you have to be better than you were in your 20s and 30s in order to stay on top. You just do.
1: Coach, my morning routine is I get up, I hit my knees, and thank God for another day. And then I do 10 push-ups. I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but I do 10 push-ups. And then I get on my knees and pray to God again, thanking God that I have the ability and the physical health to be able to do 10 push-ups. And then I go take my cold shower in the morning. What's your morning routine?
0: Hey, Rod, first of all, I've seen your physique. I'd be thanking God too that I could do 10 push ups. <laughs> uh, however, however. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Mine is very similar, but I actually do it throughout the day. So I have a, a yoga mat in my living room, and and I drop and I'll do 30 push ups to start my day. And then when, when, if I'm home, every 25 to 30 minutes, I'll set an alarm and I do another 25 push ups. What that allows me to do when I'm with my trainer is not lift so much, but we do a lot of cardio to try to – we're in fat loss mode right now, right? So we've lost 25 pounds. We're trying to get to 50. And so it's a lot of push-ups, a ton of sit-ups, and a lot of just hard, fast switched muscle exercises at the gym. But first thing out of bed in the morning, absolutely, people get your blood pumping, do push-ups, do sit-ups. I also have a roller that I do, and it's like giving yourself a deep body massage. Um, but it's important because, especially if you get over 40, you've got to work out the kinks before you can work your body out again. And that's that's all I think about.
1: And when you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, you do things at home, you practice. What What is it that you do at home? What do you work on to get better?
0: Well, there's a lot of voice exercises that I still do because your voice changes over the years. Sure. Uh, I was lucky enough to work with a voice coach at ESPN, and, uh, you know, most of the talent, their, their egos are too big to think they have anything to work on. Uh, so I would gobble up all of the time. Um, so I do a lot of voice exercises in the mirror. Um, I'll do them right before I start a show. I'm not embarrassed. I don't care. That's how I got to that point. Um, but that's a lot of what I do. I do a lot of preparation reading. I have a, a close to a photographic memory. So a lot of how I take notes is I'll read it, write it down. Even if I have it in front of me already printed out because that's how I remember, and that's what works for me. So when I'm doing it on camera, I can recall five to ten facts, because I've read them, they're in my mind, and that's how I'm able to look it so easy when I'm doing it on camera. Or I'm doing uh, some type of a project that I need to know a lot of nuggets about whatever I'm doing.
1: You don't have to mention anyone's name, but if I say to you, who is the biggest egomaniac you ever worked with at ESPN? Does someone immediately come to mind?
0: Kevin Nagandi, not even close. Really, not even close. Now, I will say this: he's a very good anchor, uh, and he's climbed the ladder, and and all of that. But uh, there was there was a time when The Rock was coming in to be interviewed, and clearly I had a rela- relationship with him, and they called me into the interview, and he says, "Nope, this is my show. I'm doing it." And lost the four, and I, I thought it was such a selfish thing to do. And there was a million stories like that. But um, sometimes you get to that level, you choose that you want to be that way, and sometimes it works for you. I just chose not to play that kind of a game. And maybe I'm the fool because he's doing the 6 o'clock Sports Center. But uh, I don't think anybody has a bigger ego at ESPN than than Kevin DeGondi.
1: The guy at ESPN you absolutely (laughs) adored, and you'd work with him again in two minutes.
0: Kevin Connors. Uh, He does a lot of um, baseball tonight. He does a lot of raps. He's one of the new voices in NBA Live. He's as good a dude as you're ever going to find in your life. Uh, and I would trust him with my kids 10 times over.
1: Okay. With that said about the uh, the guys at ESPN, recently with all the Antonio Brown nonsense with the Oakland Raiders, what was your take on that and how it turned out?
0: Uh, I agreed a lot with what Stephen A. Smith had to say. And all along, people forget that, he was traded there. He didn't he didn't pick to go to Oakland. He never wanted to play in Oakland. So he was trying his best to get out of Oakland. And he had to do all these childish things to eventually get them to release him. Now, is he crazy for walking away from thirty million? Of course he is. I don't care how much money he's made. I don't care. Because he always likes to brag about how much money he has. It doesn't matter. You're still insane for walking away from thirty million guaranteed. And people say, Well, he's gonna get insane thirty million from the Patriots. No, he's not. Because the other $20 million is not guaranteed, and they're never going to pay him that next year. They're going to renegotiate again. So to me, it was as childish as anything I've ever seen from an athlete, but it was clear he didn't want to play there. And if he chooses to walk away from $30 million, then good for him. It's just crazy that there's an entire NFL that would literally lose a leg to ever get that contract, and he's disrespecting them more than disrespecting the game. He's disrespecting them. And that, to me, is why I have no respect for him as a, as a player, excuse me, as a, as a player, but not on the field. On the field, he's second to none. And that's why he gets away with all of this. But just the whole thing was he could have done it in a different way. But he chooses to do it this way. That's why a lot of people don't have respect for him.
1: Do you consider the Patriots now the, the uh, you know, like when, when Golden State signed Durant, is it that type of situation? Do you think the Patriots <laughs> run away and hide in the AFC? No, they
0: were probably going to do it before. They play under the rules. And in the NFL, it's even harder to play under the rules. So they get players that nobody else wants, and they pay them within the structure. So think about that. They're still great within the structure of a salary cap. So to me, Golden State, they could sign somebody, and then they can keep them, and they can go over the salary cap and pay a luxury tax. That's not necessarily the case in the NFL. So I never put the Patriots in the same category as the Golden State Warriors. Not even close. Because you got to play 22 guys, you got to play 44 guys, and they still become great, no matter what.
1: So after everything that took place with Antonio Brown, and he got his way, he got out of Oakland, how do you feel about him now moving forward as a New England Patriot?
0: I think that he is going to be great. I think they're going to win the. Super Bowl, which stinks because I'm a huge Chiefs fan. Um, And it goes right back to everything that I've said. And I tell kids this all the time. When you're great, you're going to get special treatment. That's just the way it is. And so many normal people get worked up because, oh, if he was a normal person, he wouldn't get $20 He wouldn't get all these second chances. Hell, Josh Gordon wouldn't be on a football field. He'd be in jail somewhere. Well, guess what? That's not how the world works. And sports stars, big-time actors, big-time important people, they get breaks. That's just the way it is. And so stop complaining about it and just figure out how to get your own break. That's what I've always said. So I I don't fault him. I don't respect it, but I don't fault him because his greatness allows it in that league. Remember, it's a league. It's not in the real world. In the real world, he has to pay when he does stupid things. And he's done plenty of stupid things. But he has to pay for it in the real world, just not apparently in the NFL.
1: All right, Coach, before you leave me, are you sure you can't think of one good conversation that took place in the (laughs) rent-a-car driving from arena to arena? I would take that story right now more than I would take Post Malone tickets for my son. (laughs) I'm going to have to put a pin in
0: this one, and I promise the next time we talk, I'll have a story for you. Hey,
1: by the way, are you a Post Malone guy?
0: Uh, n- my kids are, I'm not really, I'm really not.
1: Okay, come on, man. Get, get it, get it going with Post Malone. Go listen to the new album. It's unbelievable. And coach, as always, brother, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time as always.
0: Hey, you're my man. I love talking to you. Have a great show. And, uh, I am off to San Diego. Anybody going to
1: Carrie Underwood, come say hello. Have a great time, coach. See you. There he is. That's my good buddy, Jonathan Coachman here in the Sports Lodge on the Global Story Network. Don't forget to check me out on Twitter at the Sports Lodge. That's at the Sports Lodge. And until next time, I'm Roger Lodge. See you later. The Sports Lodge with Roger
0: Lodge was brought to you by the Global Story Network.